You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Friday the 27th of May. It's a pleasant enough morning here without suggesting we're in the height of summer, a bit of weak late spring sunshine poking through the clouds in TW11. Uh, last night, five miles away at Sandown Park, we were witness to a pretty spectacular performance from a horse that we discussed on yesterday's podcast at some length, Bay Bridge. And if we were wondering whether he was a Prince of Wales Estates horse at Ascot, whether he might be a hard week horse, was he a top notcher? Was he a horse who was just going to do okay during the course of the season? We got a few answers as he stormed up the Sandown Hill in the hands of Ryan Moore. Much to discuss in the next half an hour. But Lydia Hislop, this seems like a pretty good place to start. How good do we think he could be? Very good indeed. I was really, really impressed last night. Um, brushing aside Mustardef, who was um, making, trying to make a claim to be a star in his own right. He'd been progressing nicely. He'd won a shallow enough Gordon Richards previously, but had brushed aside his rivals. But he encountered Bay Bridge first time out this season for that horse. He was unbeaten in four starts last season. He took a step into group company for the first time and he won the Brigadier. Uh, dear Gerard in the style of a group one horse and hopefully it'll be the Prince of Wales' stakes next and he has a leading chance in it if not the leading chance. Yeah I'm, Jonathan was making the point yesterday that he he was a 16 to 1 shot going into yesterday and I had a little look through some of the, the rivals in that race and you're not quite sure apart from the Japanese horse Shariar exactly who's going to show up. Now Shariar is clearly going to be a formidable rival but we don't really know what Adar is now going to be capable of, and we definitely don't know what Mishriff is now. Absolutely not. No, I mean Adar ended last season on a low note with a fifth in the Champion Stakes. Is he better at a mile and a half? I think he probably is. Uh, a Mishriff, well, he would be a a, a sturdy rival um, on the basis of his international win from last season, but he was tailed off in the Saudi Cup last time we saw him. So, what is Mishriff now? Lord North has made the revival to some degree. He's won two Dubai Turfs now, and he won the Prince. Wales stakes back in 2020 but Baybridge just looks a, a, a different a different level I, I, I think and I, I think he's a he's a very 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 exciting horse I loved his head carriage I love the way he he went about it in the most straightforward manner at Sandown and Sir Michael Stout when he's 12th edition you have to explain why, why, why you're laughing now <laughs> well it got to me this time last year as well because I mean I, I could I could only count the 10 previous wins but I, I was told by uh, the Wikipedia headline that it, it was 11 but if you counted back it was actually um, 10 um, and so there was a sort of look into what, what the actual answer was and it looks like when um, uh, Michael Stout had a winner in the past it was updated from six to eight wins with just the one success in the meantime so it was a Wikipedia error and as my old boss Mark Popham would say from Race News you must always check Nick you must always check <laughs> well courtesy of the, the sporting life I can tell you that his previous winners of the race are Stagecraft good horse Opera House 
Good very, horse. very good horse. Pil Sudski. Oh. Great horse? Or very yes. good horse. Yeah. I think great horse. Insatiable, pretty good horse. Not now Cato, very good horse. Workforce, a brilliant horse on his day. Mm-hmm. Carlton House, fairly good horse, bit unlucky. Autocratic, can't remember him at all. Poet <laughs> very, very good horse. Um, particularly one day at Ascot. Regal Reality, Monkey, who could have been a good horse if he'd bothered to try. And yesterday's winner, Bay Bridge. There are some pretty damn good ones for a group three. Well, James Savage said to you earlier in the week, didn't, didn't he, that it's a race that uh, Michael Stout likes and he likes to start his potential top-notchers off in it and that's exactly what he's done. So it's performing to a, to a classic type from, from the yard and he looks right up to, up to scratch. It's, it's, it's very exciting and I, it's great the way that he has been brought through the ranks as well. And it, it is, I mean, it's, a, it's a cliche, but people say it for a reason, but it, it's classic Stout. Um, just on that point, before we put this to bed, um, Stout, it's considered he's having a renaissance because he's got this horse and Desert Crown, but I'm not sure he ever really went away. In the last yeah. three seasons, he was 84 from 395 at 21%, 74 from 366 at 20%, and then 67 from 324 at 21%. In point of fact, this season, he's 11 from 67 at 16%. But, you know, don't let the facts spoil a good story. <laughs> Well, he, he did, in terms of his ability as a trainer and what he was achieving, absolutely he never went away. But of course, you know, he's had personal um, tragedy with the uh, passing away of, of his partner. So we, we, the racing public, hadn't seen him as frequently as we liked um, in recent months. So in that sense, I suppose, it is great to have Sir Michael Stout back. Yeah, and of course, it doesn't really matter how many winners you train at a, at a fairly decent level you want the headline horses more now than, than I think ever before. Definitely. And the point that you and Jonathan were discussing about, you know, wanting to have these top flight stables in actual competition. I mean, that, that period of time when Godolphin weren't putting up much against Bally Doyle, that was a frustrating period because you were, you were feeling that the, that the top races were possibly a little bit too one-sided until you went further afield. So uh, you'd, you know, you do want competition with lots of different yards being able to play at the top level. And the fact that Sir Michael Stout has got Bay Bridge um, and has got Desert Crown, hopefully will prove up to be to be that level, is, is could only be a good thing for the sport. So that was very good yesterday. Um, bit of Derby news coming through. It's not surprising, but it's good news for the race. Charlie Appleby, as anticipated after that good bit of work on Wednesday, has opted to supplement nation's pride the new market stakes went into the race he will join nahani and walk of stars lydia yes please yes absolutely it's good to hear that, he, that charlie's taken our advice we were only saying that that this is what he should do uh, this time last week weren't we i'm mostly joking charlie um <laughs> uh, yeah i think that's that gives him a stronger hand personally yeah and i would think and I, this may be breaking and if it is and it's out of date then so be it but i was listening to a Sky Sports racing interview from Yarmouth yesterday, Jason, we were talking to James Doyle. And I wondered if James Doyle was lining himself up for Walk of Stars with Buick on Nation's Pride and Adam Kirby on Nahani. And he rode that one at Breakfast with the Stars. So I don't know. That's what I was thinking. Okay. Watch out for Nahani then. Yeah, exactly. That could be a <laughs> thing. That could become a thing, couldn't it? A bit like a, a bit like when Calvin Burrell won the Kentucky Derby every year. You know, Adam Kirby wins the Derby every year on a good old third. <laughs> I'm sure, he, I'm sure he'd love that. But in all seriousness, um, I think uh, they've all got uh, shouts 
for different reasons. Um, Walk of Stars is going to have to get a lot of lot smarter, um, more street smart than he showed at Lingfield, and maybe he will because he looked raw. Not much to get too excited about in the UK and Ireland over the weekend, though there's lots of racing. France, two Group 1s, however. The pre-Saint-Allery, above the curve, is a filly I love. I'd love to, to have seen her in the Oaks. I get why they're running here, but I've, I must confess, I'd love to have seen her at Epsom. I totally agree. I thought she looked made for the Oaks as well when she was just a bit outsmarted at, at Chester uh, last time. So, yeah, that that is a shame. More logical, I think, to see Prosperous Voyage there. I think 10 furlongs could be um, more more the bag of the 1,000 guineas runner-up than necessarily a mile and a half. And um, I've mentioned already this week that uh, uh, Zaki's running in the Doomben Cup. Uh, is another horse on the comeback trail somewhat mm. in the pre-dispower it's a very winnable group one well uh, without wishing to be disrespectful it quite often is isn't it um it's a sort of starting point uh, group one it sort of strikes me as sort of similar to the tassels gold cup maybe um that that kind of, uh, of race and it is a good spot for Sealy way to start and uh, he obviously he's a tremendous horse um, at his best interesting to see that ed walker has got dream loper in there after her narrow defeat of ville de grasse in the dahlia we know that torquato tato is a group one horse we heard from julia romick about his reappearance that takes place at baden baden on sunday i'm quite looking forward to seeing him again yeah, me too. I was. I found that that interview really interesting. It sounds like he's done well over the winter, and it would be great to see him thoroughly back up what he did in the arc. I mean, it wasn't. You know, I think probably lots of us, me definitely, were were guilty of overlooking the solidity of his form going into the race, comparative with the price that he went off. Um, and so, I, I would like to see him just augment his reputation further. And it'd be great to see him over here. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to to, to his comeback. And uh, you know, I think he's I take him very seriously as a as a middle distance player this season at the very top level. Of course, you would. Let's take stock of what else is happening in the news. Now, Lydia, the fact that trainers associated with Coolmore weren't able to run horses in France at the ARC meeting at the back of 2020 has um, finally got to court. Just remind everyone what happened here and what is happening now. Yeah, this was because there was some testing in France um, for five horses, none of which were trained by the O'Briens, that the um, the testing in France found uh, had, had tested positive for Zilpaterol, um, which is um, unlicensed in Europe, but used in America to promote weight gain in cattle primarily. Um, the the traces of, of Zilpaterol had turned up in Gain Equine Nutrition, which is owned by Glanbier. Um, and so there was a statement to the trainers on the eve of the ARC, or the, it's actually the Friday night before the ARC, uh, advising them not to feed the products to their horses. Um, and in the end, on a precautionary note, uh, the O'Brien family, um, Aidan, Donica and Joseph, withdrew 11 intended runners from Sunday's Longchamp card. Um, and that included four runners, uh, potential runners in the arc, including um, Serpentine, who'd been um, supplemented at a cost of €72,000. They, they did that just because they were concerned that had the horses run, that they would have tested positive for the, the trace findings of Zilpaterol, which the French authorities had found in other horses. And so formal le- legal proceedings began on Tuesday. Ten companies associated with Coolmore and Ballydoyle initiated proceedings against Glambia Foods Ireland. Um, the 
ingredients in Gaines food, um, molasses, that's where the contamination of Zilpatol was traced to, and that was supplied by ED and F liquid products. Um, in March, Glambia took legal action against them as a result of that, and claiming that the issue cost them nine million euros. Um, so this is the latest step in, in probably what was a, an inevitable process once a mistake that costly had taken place. Okay, to be continued. Uh, let's talk about the Anglo-Irish classifications, which came out shortly after we finished podding yesterday. Uh, and the, the, the headline really is just a continuation of the, the debate that, that raged on toward the back end of the last jump season surrounding Constitution Hill, Lydia. Yeah, I thought that was one of, of two things. So maybe we can come back to, to, to the other one. Yeah, so Constitution Hill has been uh, rated 170, which is the highest classification um, for um, a novice since um, the classifications began in 1999-2000 um, um, season. So the highest ever, according to the Anglo-Irish classifications, rating for a novice. Five pounds above honeysuckle, which means obviously with her seven pound allowance, it would still be a horse race. Um, but you know, if we think back to immediately after um, the Cheltenham Festival where Constitution Hill was so impressive in the Supreme, a race that was really set up to, for him to be able to show a huge amount of ability. Um, shortly afterwards, Timeform already nominated him as the highest rated novice since Golden Signet, the mighty touchstone of all previous novices in 77-78, of course also won the Supreme so impressively in 78, but sadly died in the Scottish champion hurdle before he was ever able to prove himself a champion hurdle standard. It really does set it all up for Constitution Hill versus Honeysuckle in the champion hurdle next March and let's hope we get to see it. Uh, what was the other um, item that piqued your interest? Well, who would you have as the most talented chaser of last season? Uh, oh, this is a tough one. It is a toughie, I know. Well, I, uh, is it Aplutar or is it Aloe or is it an argument? Or is it Shishkin? On, or is it Shishkin on the Ascot run? Yeah. I think it's pretty close between all of them. I personally would have given it to Alaho. I was slightly surprised to see him three pounds behind a Plutar. A Plutar a one eighty. I mean, it was a very impressive Gold Cup success. Clearly, again, it was kind of I think set up to a large degree to uh, bring out the best performance that he was capable of. I think circumstances very much suited him and didn't suit others. Whereas Alaho's made his own luck, hasn't he? And he's absolutely thumped horses at Punchestan over three miles on his final start. And I think that and his Ryanair success and what he achieved in the earlier part of the season, I'd have him edging it personally. But anyway, I mean, it sets up nicely for, for next season to, to find out what, you know, what, whether any of these horses can distinguish themselves further or prove their point. So you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the the plan to cut three hundred races off the off the race calendar, and there was a sort of livid debate between representatives of the National Trains Federation, the Jockey Club, and uh, Martin Crudders from the Arena Racing Company, and possibly some factions within the Horsemen's Group who weren't putting their head above the parapet. Well, I thought, well, what's happened here? Because there was a sort of suggestion that this actually might get pushed through within the next couple of weeks. So I called. Paul Johnson, the chief executive of the National Trains Federation yesterday, and said, is this likely anytime soon? So he replied and said, the industry executive committee meets on the 8th of June, and it's expected that a decision on race volume for 2023 will be reached at this meeting. Although this seems quite drawn out, the process that's being followed is quite a normal one, but for the fact it's usually played out behind the scenes. 
<laughs> yeah, the NCF continues to be concerned about the negative impact that uncompetitive racing is having on interest in the sport and remain of the view that in order to protect future prize money levels, action is required. So the NCF holding firm, as you'd expect, and they've made their position clear. 8th of June is D-Day, it sounds, Lydia. I mean, there's a, there'll be an element, for those who don't want this, there surely is now going to be an element of filibustering that they can just try and kick, kick it further down the line so they run out of time because the, the calendar's got to be decided fairly soon. Yes, a bit stronger and more resolute arguments against maintaining the fixture list at its current size are being made. I would note that that is a, is a difference as well, as well as it being partly played out. I mean, I quite... Nothing is ever secret in horse racing, really, is it? I mean, quite often these things, we, we know quite a bit about it. Maybe we know more this time around. I mean, it's, it's not as easy as you, you clip off these races here and, you know, you, you redistribute the horses in the remaining races and you redistribute the punter's pound in the remaining races as well. It, doesn't necess it isn't necessarily a, a linear progression. However, uh, at the moment... Our, if you look at our race competition, the races are just simply too thin and they, we are going to snap the interest of, you know, stretch it to breaking point and, and eventually snap the interest of racing fans unless we have competitive races. And I think that's the point that the NTF are consistently making and I applaud them from, for it. I think in the short term, it probably will mean in some sort of short-term pain uh, but I think it will be for the medium to long-term benefit I think if we carry on just having too many uncompetitive races um, we are just going to end up with a, a, a steeper decline okay so June the 8th watch this space uh, Wilf Walsh is the relatively new chair of the Racecourse Association uh, he is uh, weighed in somewhat in a piece with Bill Barber where he has said that uh, there needs to be a comprehensive strategy for the sport. Yes. Ongoing work to restructure the BHA should be concentrated on leading boldly. Yes. On behalf of shareholders such as the RCA. Uh, he says there are too many entrenched attitudes, toxic assumptions. The potential for inertia uh, can start to take a vice-like hold. We need to counteract this with fact-based decision-making supported by comprehensive market research. Uh, he talks about how he, he stressed to his race courses um, that they are in the entertainment business, and while consumers feel the impact of rising inflation and shrinking disposable income in uncertain times, they need to compete smarter and harder than ever. And so say all of us, Lydia. But let's hope the message is, is getting through to some of his constituent members. Yes, anyone would think that the RCA hasn't been part of the tripartite agreement running this sport for for lots of lots of years. I mean, you know, the RCA is a is a is a key key player here. Um, uh, along with what was the Horseman's Group and, and the BHA. I mean, newsflash, the sport needs a comprehensive strategy. Um, we keep talking about this. In fact, you know, th and this isn't a criticism of, of Wolf, Wolf Walsh, but I, this is the kind of speech I hear from successive people in positions like his and nothing gets done. Nothing at all. You know, we need a comprehensive strategy. I mean, we, we need a strategy 10 years ago. Um, that he says that there's a duty for the RCA to work collaboratively with, uh, collaboratively with other shareholder groups. Well, I think other shareholder groups would welcome this, um, this, uh, this approach from the, from the RCA. Um, 
and he mentions about valuing race goers as well but that certainly doesn't seem to be the experience that race goers are reporting back at the moment does it you know they they turn up at, at some race courses and they find facilities closed or unwelcoming um i'm not saying all race courses are like that some race courses are very good but you know they need to i mean for me there is a gap between what is said by the rca and what they actually do Well, stallion farms are always innovating in ways to to attract attention to their particularly new stallions. Um, Darley, no exception, this year with Harry Angel, who's off the mark and off the mark in some style. And the same day he got off the mark in a race at, at Chanty, it was announced who'd won the competition to get a, a nomination to, to Harry Angel, a free nomination to, to Harry Angel. And it, it was a plan that was all masterminded by Charlie Budget from Cutlington Stud, who's, who's with me now. Why do you laugh, Charlie? Uh, well, mastermind is very yeah, very very decent of Dali to put this competition on really, um, and yeah, as you say, innovative of them. Uh, very fortunate because come October the first, which is a pretty miserable day in our calendar, um, paying nominations, it's a huge help not to have to dig out a bit more money. So yeah, very grateful. Let's talk about Harry Angel and why you wanted to enter this competition and how you went about it. Because there's got to be a little bit of a strategy here. You've got to have the right mare um, to, to to match him and and sort of whether you were interested in him initially. Anyway, we were interested in him. Um, uh, it's difficult not to be interested in a world champion, really a sprinter, um, especially as the price dropped from twenty, which I thought was pretty cheap for a world champion, down to twelve and a half. So. We did go to the sales with the idea we'd buy a mare in fold, Harry Angel. Um, we couldn't find one that we actually, well, we, we tried on a few, didn't didn't get anything. Um, and then we worked with Clive Webb Carter, who does a fantastic job with the matings and analysis. So we um, looked at all our mares, saw what would work, and this mare, um, she popped up, a mare called Rideson, um, that actually was a very good match. Um, pedigree-wise, bloodline-wise, so off she went. And we would have done that regardless, obviously. Um, she was in foal by the time we won this prize. Um, we had chosen Harry Angel, obviously, one for his race record, which is pretty impeccable. And we saw the progeny at the yearling sales, and then the book that comes out after the yearling sales that has all the price in shows which the judges have been buying them and obviously we know which trainers these judges are associated with so which stables they're going to go to um and that all lined up pretty well and then also potentially most importantly the breeding right holders in harry angel um because those are the stud farms that are going to be raising these horses um they've got some very very strong breeding right holders so that's obviously a huge part part of the puzzle well, it's all come to fruition um, fairly gloriously. Uh, nobody who's listening who hears the name Budget will be able to do so without thinking of your late grandfather, Arthur Budget, who trained the two brothers, Blakeney and Morstan, to win the to win the Derby all those years ago. I, I, I guess you're too young to remember those, but not too young to remember his own memories of Epsom. Uh, definitely too young to remember those. They were 69 and 73. Um, last eight years before I was born um, but yes I went to Epsom with him the the year that See the Stars won um, he was the trophy as such it was a bronze of him with Wimble Girl the dam of Morstan Blakeney and he presented it to the choice um, but it was very interesting 
sitting there with him um, and he was saying basically how lucky he was. He was an extremely modest man, but um, how difficult it is to win the derby and how unpredictable it is, obviously with the Cambers. And is it something that fires your, your imagination still? Could you, could you dream about producing a, a derby winner from, from your start? It, it is the dream. Um, it, definitely. I mean, the reason pretty much I started was because of him and my uncle as well, actually, who's had his own derby success with Sir Percy. Um, but I started on the stud that he used to have, um, which is a crossroad from my uncle's Curtinson stud. So I've sort of been actually when I took over trying to do the stud that we didn't have a fence post in the ground that we do now um, didn't have a barn so it's all been and we're using the same land as he had back in the day so it's about sort of rejuvenating the whole the whole stud really which is taking a bit of time we're probably a couple of years off still but we're getting there so no it was, it was all down to down to his success and the stories growing up well, I'm not sure that Harry Angel's going to be the, the man to give you your derby winner, but, but he, he may well give you a champion sprinter along the way, which I don't suppose you'll mind. Th- thanks so much for talking to me, Charlie. No, thanks very much. Thanks for the time. Well, we may be in the middle of the season, but the season is just around the corner and fashion will be taking, if not centre stage, at least a, a portion of the stage at Royal Ascot in a few weeks and at Epsom at the end of next week, which gives me the perfect excuse to welcome back to the Nick Luck Daily podcast uh, the person I like to consider to be the official milliner of this show, Lisa Tan. Uh, because, Lisa, you've been involved in some very important work with, with Epsom next week and looking forward to seeing you again. Looking forward to seeing you too there, Nick. Uh, absolutely, I have been. We've been working on it since the beginning of the year in conjunction with the British Hat Guild, of which I am a member. Uh, Go Epsom, Epsom Downs Race Course and the Jockey Club, and also Brain Tumor Research. We have put together uh, 15 hats for a millinery auction, but it's a very special millinery auction because we're celebrating Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee by designing the hats around the seven decades of which she's been our queen. So we've got some very, very interesting interesting designs going on, uh, some kind of throwbacks, I guess you could say, some classic pieces, some modern pieces, and really something for everyone. Okay, so just give me an example of what the the throwbackest throwback might be. <laughs> uh, well, I guess... For example, mine, I've taken the 1980s as my inspiration. And let me tell you, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a bold display of graphics. Uh, there are some um, polka dots going on. There's some lines going on. It's black and white. And if you're looking for something eye-catching and head-turning, uh, it's definitely that piece. But otherwise, we've got some other beautiful options. Stephen Jones, who is a bit of a legend in our industry and also our chairman, he's designed a piece for the 1950s. And it's a very dainty little cocktail hat in black and white with a, a spray of jet black feathers on the side which is a fantastic option uh, we've also got Julia Mio doing the 1950s and she's done a very delicate piece uh, it's all done completely by hand couture uh, with some handmade flowers which is what her specialty is We've also got Martha Lynn, who's done a really interesting piece. She's actually taken one of the hats that the Queen wore to Royal Ascot in the 70s, but she's redesigned it in contemporary materials like perspex and vinyl. So that's a really great piece too. And then obviously we look towards the 2010s, which is really just, you know, not that long ago. So we've got some beautiful classic pieces from that era from Rachel Trevor Morgan, who is best known as being mm. the Queen's Milliner, and uh, Edwina Ibbotson as well, who does some excellent couture work. And both of those ladies have provided some hats, which I think are just absolutely timeless and would look great in any decade. 
And of course, it's not as though you're busy uh, with Royal Ascot just around the corner either. Oh, and that and everything else, to be honest with you. There's a lot going on this week. We've got a pop-up shop going on in um, Parsons Green. I've just launched launched an online collection with Coast Fashion as well. Uh, and then we've got Royal Ascot too. So, uh, But first, we've got to concentrate on Epsom. That's the main one coming up for us. And Epsom are putting your uh, judging skills to good use, I gather, on, on Ladies' Day on Friday? They are. It's going to be a fun one. I'm really looking forward to this. I'll be judging the Style Awards alongside uh, the fabulous Sarah Kate Byrne, who's best known as being Francesca Kamani's stylist. And also, in what I believe is probably a world first, uh, we have a drag queen on the judging panel uh, in Cherry Valentine. So I think it's going to be a very fun competition. And I'm fairly certain we're going to be looking for a bit of a bold risk-taking outfit if, if the three of us are judging together. Yeah, I, I dare say that's that's the case. Obviously, we can't let this go without talking a little bit about um, men's fashion. I guess that hasn't evolved in quite the same exciting and interesting way uh, in terms of what racegoers are wearing at Epsom and Ascot over the last uh, seven decades. Yeah, I would I would say that's probably a fair point to make, although obviously people have been, especially in the winter months, I guess, they've been gravitating towards that Peaky Blinders look, which has been very popular over the last few years. Um, but definitely in terms of, especially when you've got dress codes going on in the Queensland and in the Royal Enclosure, there's not a great deal men can do. Although I do believe that Ascot has introduced uh, navy morning suits. So you can have a little bit more colour than what you've had before, but we do always encourage men to, I mean, men can enter the best dress competition as well. I will put that out there. The Style Awards are open to everyone. Uh, and we encourage you to look at accessories, I think, is the best way of, of um, beefing up your outfit. So a great hat, uh, a great tie, colourful socks even, uh, and the little details such as a pocket square, they can really make the difference. Well, with the help of my good friend, Mr. David Yates, I'll always be in possession of a, of a good top hat. <laughs> but he he is not, and you are the official milliner to this programme. Uh, we will be catching up, no doubt, at the end of next week. Lisa, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks so much, Nick. I really appreciate it. Lisa Tan there, milliner to the stars as well as to this podcast. And you can find out more about the Queen's Jubilee hat auction by visiting www.braintumorresearch.org forward slash fundraise forward slash jubilee dash hat dash auction. Braintumorresearch.org forward slash fundraise forward slash jubilee dash hat dash auction. And if you want to see uh, the hats on display in the Queen's stand, you can do so at Epsom on Friday and Saturday. Right, it is Friday. This is going to be fast and furious. It's our weekly check-in with James Willoughby for the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. There is so much to get through. Let's give you a spin through the top 11. It's deliberately a top 11 because it takes in one of the most significant climbers this week. At 11, from 21, is the Irish Guineas winner, Native Trail. Yes, that rather workmanlike, was it? Unimpressive to some performance the Irish Guineas has shunted him up 10 places to 11. That is still 12 places above Caribus, who has gone down three places. James is going to explain this all in a few moments' time. The top 10 is unchanged. Animo at 10, Very Elegant at 9, Euphoria for Japan at 8, Nick's Go, who's retired at 7. He'll be slipping out soon. Zaki's at 6, Jackie's Warriors at 5. By the way, Zaki goes in the Doombin Cup tomorrow. Uh, Life is Good at 4, Nature Strip at 3, Golden 60 at 2, and of course, Number one, and by a, by a fairly good margin as well in, in terms of TRC rankings, is Baid set for Royal Ascot, set to open up Royal Ascot in the Queen Anne Stakes, of course. But James, loads to take stock of here, and I want to know 
why native trail is being looked upon so favorably by the TRC mainframe whilst his new market conqueror Caribus continues to languish down in the 20s. Right, well, um, technically this is because the English guineas featured a bit of a crowd scene with horses quite close, relatively close behind the front two Godolphin horses. And according to the computer, that level of form can't be raised because it would mean raising other horses behind who would cr create the whole basis of what we're doing here are what's called ranking violations, as you and I have discussed before. And a ranking violation occurs when you look through the form book and you find a horse that beat another horse who's higher ranked than it in the world. So what the computer is trying to do is trying to put, sort all the horses in the right order. Now, occasionally, you come up with things like this where you think to yourself, mm, they should be closer together, these two. If not, some people think Caribus is a better horse. But the way the computer looked at it, the maths as such, is that Native Trail actually achieved improved form, according to the computer. Now, one of the reasons for that is that we associate winning margins with much bigger points or pounds differences than is traditionally the case. The official handicappers in each country use a linear scale, don't they? They convert distances to pounds according to some fixed measurement between horses. We don't do that. We shrink and expand those margins because those margins are a function not just of the relative merits of the horse, but the run of the race. And in the computer's view, native trail was much the best in the Irish 2000 guineas. The computer's not bothered at all that its winning margin wasn't all that great. It has expanded that winning margin. And based on the fact that this is a horse that has now won three group ones, which is far in excess of the other horses of its generation, two other group racers from six tries. What the computer's saying is, this is an animal that deserves to take high rank. So looking back at its form, if you will, it's manipulated each of those racers to say, you know, which of those racers could it have been by far the best? How much am I worried about the 2000 years at Newmarket? The computer takes the view that Native Trail was well below form when Caribus beat it, and that Native Trail is the better horse. Mm. And we will maybe not find out because the two are unlikely to meet, but we, we might get a boost for Caribus at, at Royal Ascot, I guess, and yeah. who knows where Native Trail will head next. Now, there were, there were quite a few pundits immediately after the Irish Guineas were run who suggested that homeless songs would give any of these colts a match in receipt of the Phillies allowance. So impressive was she, and indeed she was in the Irish Guineas. Uh, TRC rankings take a slightly different view, James. Undoubtedly, yeah. Too soon, says the computer, but not just too soon to rank homeless songs along with the best of the, the Colts who achieved a lot more than her. But also, she has suffered two defeats in between her wins, which, again, is, should be sobering. And it's the type of thing that isn't taken into account as much as it should be, in that every time we observe a horse on the race course, it's no different to observing a football team in a match, in that what we see in a performance is ability plus randomness. The randomness caused by the pace, the going of the horse has been off form, etc. What official raters do, and this, the, the former VHA handicapper Phil Smith was uh, a particular uh, advocate of this approach, was that they try to land things on the head of the pin and try to say it's a 115 horse. That's not the way we do things here at TRC rankings. It's not the way we do the, the, the world of statistics operates. Signal plus noise in every performance. So what the computer's saying at the moment is, yes, 
It could turn out that Home Song is a very good horse. After all, she really trounced the opposition. In terms of performance, we rated that, or the computer rated that, very highly, 121, 120, sorry. But the second horse, Tuesday, isn't, is only just inside the world's top 1,000, according to the computer. So there's not much substance to that particular style. She's got those two defeats before. The computer's saying, Nick, let's see it again before we believe it. She does it again, fair dues. But at the moment, we prefer the Colts. Now, what about the American Triple Crown horses, James? Early voting won the Preakness in good style from an apparently unlucky epicentre. What did you make of it? Well, the computer's all over this horse like a rash. It really loves this early voting and its form in particular. And the reason partly for that is, as you've already said, early voting entered the Preakness with a big figure. Uh, that came from finishing second to Mo Donegal, who's 71 in the world, and a great candidate for the Belmont Stakes, I would say. And this is a performance the computer ranks very highly indeed. It, it was the performance of the week in a week pack full of quality uh, in terms of merit at one, two, three. And that springboards early voting up to number 18. Now, remember, that's behind the world's top three-year-old native trail. But it now makes early voting the best three-year-old in America ahead of, sorry, the runner-up there, Epicenter, who stays at 22, four places below early voting, and significantly ahead of Zandon, the Kentucky, the much fancy Kentucky Derby third, Mo Donegal, who is at 71, as I've already mentioned, and Rich Strike, the Derby winner, at 146, who the computer definitely needs to see perform to that level again before it's going to be taken seriously. Okay, so that's what's happening in the United States. What about the rest of the world in uh, Hong Kong, Japan, Australia? Anything to report there? Well, there was so much to go on. First of all, domestically, let's talk about the Tattersalls Gold Cup. And this is significant not just for Alan Kerr's performance, who now moves up to 26 from 51 in the world. That's behind the horse it beat their state of rest into third. Uh, and, and that horse, that um, the Joseph O'Brien Cox Plate winner from last year, uh, is 24, remains at 24. High definition, he's only 4.99. Now, he could be a lot higher than that. But for now, what the, in effect the computer's saying is, Ryan Moore gave that horse a wonderful ride. Its form is in excess of anything it's done before. Let's see that one do it again before we really elevate it into the top 100, where I think he probably deserves to be high definition. I think he's a heck of a prospect. Max Swiney, last year's 2000 Guineas winner in Ireland, returned at 3.81 after a bit of a, a damp squib there. So that rounds up the older horses in Ireland, but there was so much more to talk about, as you said. And in Japan, they think they found another female superstar in Stars on Earth, who added her Japanese Oaks to a Japanese Guineas win with a fluent Japanese Oaks win that we rated at 117. Remember, that's three points below Homeless Songs over there in Ireland. But that's good enough to promote Stars on Earth just below Homeless Songs, 55 in the world from 197. The runner-up there in the Japanese Oaks, Stunning Rose, is 318 uh, in the world. Now, mention of Alan Kerr's trainer, William Haggis, reminds me to note that he is now eight from 10 in the world after five of his last six group race winners have been successful. And this is the highest position that Baid's trainer has occupied. And he also had the German 2000 Guineas winner. Another trainer on the move in America was Brad Cox, who had a pair of grade two winners at the Pimlico meet there. 
including the Black Eyed Susan Stakes, which is the sort of second leg, if you will, of the Phillies uh, triple crown over there. And he replaced this John Gosden at number four, possibly uh, temporarily. And an old friend of yours, uh, Nick, from your exploits in the Middle East, T.O. Keynes. Remember, he was much hyped for the Saudi Cup, but he was part of the pace meltdown there. Well, he came back to form in the Grade 3 Hayon Stakes, which we rated at 114. He moves up to 60 in the world. And just to summarise all of this, we're in the middle now of the season of an epoch where there are loads of horses moving upwards. There are loads worldwide of upwardly mobile horses who are bounding up the rankings, establishing their position at the top of their particular national milieu, if you will. And it's an exciting time to follow global racing this time of year to find out who are the true champions. Could Homeless Song be as good as she looked in Ireland? Could Stars on Earth continue to add to her impressive portfolio in Japan? What else might we see? Final note, Russian Emperor in Hong Kong, he won the Stam uh, Standard Champions and Cheta Cup. They're one of their most important races, and they don't have that many of them numerically. He's the fourth best horse in Hong Kong now, according to us, behind world number two, Golden 60, and also Romantic Warrior and Wellington. So it was a great week, and you can catch up with it all every week on thoroughbredracing.com. You can search all our performance database, see whether you agree with where we've ranked the various horses and keep up with my favorite storyline in world racing at the moment and that is my old pal Zaki. How high Nick can he fly? Uh, Doom Ben Cup might nudge him up a few more places. James thanks so much. Many thanks Nick. All right thanks to James you know what's going on in the world now. Uh, Lydia is back with me and before I'm just going to get you to give a tip in a moment Lydia but first of all um Big Bucks is back at the National Horse Racing Museum. You can go and see Big Bucks for a summer holiday um, uh, and wander in and say hi. While you're there, do visit the Munnings exhibition. That, now that is a visitor attraction in the heart of Racing's headquarters. It really is. It really is. I'm looking forward to seeing that exhibition. I have my um, invitation and I would have, would have been going anyway. So, um, yes, I'm looking forward to that. Big Bucks must be a huge pull. You'd know this. He, he must be, mustn't he? He is, and he's lovely as well. I, I mean, I know he was, he was quirky when he was, when he was racing, even though he went 18 straight races uh, undefeated. Uh, Paul Nichols always say he used to walk his box, and he was very much, you really had to handle him quite carefully to, to get the best out of him. But he's, although he is his own man, he's, he's tremendous with, with everyone who goes and sees him. And it was, it's just lovely to see him. He looks so well, too. He and that's really great to hear. He looks, he looks fantastic. That's great to hear. I, I haven't seen him for a while, so I, I will look forward to, to seeing him. I mean, I, I'm always struck by Sprinter Sacra whenever I see him parading at the race course, how magnificently well he looks. So I'm glad to hear that uh, Big Bucks is, is doing the same. Our, our past champions, um, our flag bearers for our sport, really important to see them happy in retirement. All right, Lydia, do you have a tip for this weekend for me? I do. I'm going to Haydock on Saturday for the 4.40 and the horse is the Cookston Cafu, who I think got in a, a bit of kerfuffle in the early part of his uh, seasonal debut at York. Still did well to finish third. It's probably going to be a competitive race with the likes of Notions in there, but I like the Cookston Cafu in the 4.40 at Haydock on Saturday. OK, that's tomorrow at 4.40 at Haydock, Saturday. Uh, amazingly, it's a seven furlong handicap and not a mile and six race for three-year-olds. Extraordinary. When this will never cease. Uh, that was Friday the 27th of May. We will be back on Monday. Charlotte will be here tonight after nine o'clock with a roundup of what's happened this week. Uh, but from all of us, bye-bye for now.
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.